Hi, Salima Hamarani here. And before we play our show, I want to ask you to make a donation to Making Contact. Become part of our group of supporters who believe in the value of independent media. We can only do this work with your support. And right now, your donation will be doubled by Newsmatch. So please just take a minute, go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a generous donation. Thank you so much. Now here's the show. Our system is in too many ways broken. The way we see the world shapes the way that we treat it. This is Making Contact. The Benedictines were the law enforcement arm of the Catholic Church. When all of the other denominations failed, they brought in the Benedictines. They would line you up by the blackboard and crack your hands with a ruler. And I still carry those scars on every one of my fingers. And naturally, I ran away. I ran away from all that. Clyde Bellacourt is one of the founders of the American Indian Movement, or AIM. He's just one of thousands of social justice leaders in communities all over the world who passed away in 2022. Finally, I was picked up 12 years old, put in jail. And I went to a court, a juvenile court. And against my mother's wishes, I refused to go back to that mission school. But when I refused to apologize to that priest and to the teachers, they judged me incorrigible. And I've been incorrigible ever since. I'm certified incorrigible. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact. We're closing out the year, as we usually do, with inspiring words from people like Clyde Bellacourt, some of our fallen heroes. Next, we want to honor pioneering black artist and art historian Samela Lewis, who died in May at 99 years old. I am Kelly Jones. I'm the Hans Hoffman Professor of Modern Art at Columbia University and the chair of African-American and African Diaspora Studies Samella Lewis was an amazing person. She was an artist, activist, historian, curator, professor, gallerist, collector, filmmaker, and doyen of media, as well as a mentor to many. And she did this for about eight decades. Living in the South, I couldn't speak my mind because my parents had told me it might get me in trouble. And so I had to find a way to express my feelings. And I did it through art. She's teaching and teaching, and she comes to Los Angeles and tries to change Los Angeles County Museum of Art, LACMA. But she felt frustrated with that. And so she left. And then she protested the museum, as people were doing also on the East Coast. You can think of the protests against the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Whitney Museum of American Art and MoMA here in New York. But then she just decided to take things into her own hands. She was like, I'm not going to make them change. I'm going to do my own thing and figure it out. And she opens all these institutions. She does a magazine. She does the books. She did a lot of art history activism, curatorial activism. I think her own work at a certain point took a back seat. 
the artist became the art historian because of I was angry because when I studied art history, I saw nothing of Africa. I saw nothing of African Americans, and I saw nothing of really Asians. Nobody, but except Westerners. Anyway, I started um, writing these books, these papers, and these books and these catalogs. And of course, when people would see me coming, they would say, oh, there she is again, you know, that kind of thing, with all her rhetoric. But uh, it worked to my advantage because I was able to say what I wanted to say. She also begins making films, and she eventually starts a magazine. The first issue of Black Art and International Quarterly has articles about Brazil. It has articles about Africa. It has articles about the United States. So from the very first, she's always interested in the African diaspora, what we would call the African diaspora now. I really had to uh, make a statement. And maybe it was out of... Uh, just sheer need to say something in terms of to satisfy myself, but also I felt that black people, African-Americans in general, needed it. They needed to know. Samela Lewis started a museum called the Museum of African-American Art in the department store on Crenshaw Boulevard. <laughs> basically in Lamert Park, and it's still there. It's gone through many iterations. It was Macy's, but she started that because for her, seeing that model in Japan, where she saw art in department stores, was a way that she felt that everyday people could be in touch with art. They just didn't have works in, in the museums. I felt that something had to be done to document what African-American artists were doing, not just for the artists, but for the population, the people in general. Samela Lewis changed the course of art history by African-Americans or about African-American artists because she said, I'm going to be an independent. I'm not going to wait for people to do anything for me. That is her legacy, that one, Samela Lewis said, do it yourself. You know, open your own galleries, open your own museum, start your own magazine, write your own books, make some films too. And then the world kind of caught up with her 50 years later, 60 years later. Trans activist and co-founder of the Transy House in New York City, Rusty Mae Moore, February, age 80. I'm Mariah Lopez. I am a New Yorker, and I happen to be the executive director of STAR, which is the oldest trans rights group in the U.S. Rusty Mae Moore was probably one of the most influential trans leaders in the LGBT movement over the past, you know, 30 or so years. She is a hero and she's a saint for choosing to open up her home at a time to strangers, to utter strangers, 
off the grid with no support from the system when Rusty sort of gave the green light that, you know, young trans women of color were welcome at Transy House. People took them up on their offer. We bought the house in the summer of 1994. We always had trans people there. It was by word of mouth. It spread pretty quickly that there were these trans people from in Brooklyn that had their own house and uh, that some people were staying there. I met Rusty when I was a teenager, as a runaway, I go over to Transy House. I had never been safer. I was in this house with trans people. You know, it become normal to just be there, safe, not in the street. I wasn't turning the tr a trick. I wasn't leaving the stroll broke or the police chasing me on Christopher Street at six in the morning. I was in bed where I should be as a teen. I was under the cover somewhere and I had a trans elder on her way to work, setting a good example for me as a human. It's hard in New York City to get a place to live in. A lot, especially for trans people, a lot of them have trouble finding housing. And we were all trans, so there was none of that thing where you know they would be objectified or harassed or anything like that. So we ended up having a lot of trans people, not a lot, but I mean, we would have like eight to 12 or something like that for the next five years or so. So at Transy House, Mostly it would be these adults from these other organizations that would obviously use this house to do basic organizational work. Without Rusty's parlor in her row house in Park Slope in 2001, it is very possible that the world today would not know Sylvia Rivera the way they know her. It is Rusty providing a place, a physical home, the likes of which Sylvia had not had in decades. This magical place became the glue that tied sort of the modern day to the original trans rights movement. You know, we didn't have any mission about it. We were just like, oh, we're, this is where we live. We share a house. But then when people started to come, then it, we sort of had it, took it as a mission to help younger people, especially to find some place to live if they didn't have any support. A lot of young people, there, there are stories where people just load their kid in the car in Texas, drive up to New York City, dump them out in the street and say, have a good life. And they go back to Texas and that's it. And they're supposed to survive as a trans person in New York City. Transy House provided a sense of stability and family that I think many, many trans people are missing in general. And I you know, know that trans folk from New York City strongly black. And I struggle to think of where the movement would be today if Transy House didn't exist in the early aughts. And so without Rusty, we simply would not have the modern trans rights movement we have. Southern labor organizer Saladin Mohammed, September, age 76. My name is Angaza Laughing House. I'm one of the co-founding members of Black Works for Justice along with Saladin Muhammad. Since the auto industry in the late 70s and 80s had began to leave the Midwest, Detroit, Chicago, and they began coming south into these little rural counties where they began setting up auto manufacturing, we saw this as a great opportunity to begin organizing. And Saladin Muhammad and myself, Jim Grant, and many others began digging in. The issues that our organizing reflected was the issues of racism at work. 
black workers had to take the lead in building workplace organizations that could involve any workers who wanted to fight around the issues that impacted all workers, but that greatly impacted sections of the working class, black workers. Saladin began organizing the Kmart workers for justice. So that was in 1981. And we were able to convene the workers that Saladin was organizing, along with the farm workers and the packing houses and the other 10 counties, we were able to convene all these workers into what we call the Founding Workers' Assembly for Black Workers for Justice. I belong to a union that's probably about 95% black African-American workers. It's not because we put flyers out, you know, saying black workers join the union. We put flyers out saying, you know, if you got problems, you need power, you need to challenge issues, join the union. Black workers come. We began to build campaigns. Some dealt with voting rights. And some of the members of Black Works for Justice were the key plaintiffs in a voting rights suit down in eastern North Carolina, which we won. Saladin was a strong believer that the centrality of the black workers was very important to rebuilding the freedom movement here in the South. Keep in mind, here in North Carolina, public sector workers still do not have the right to collectively bargain. Due to an old Jim Crow law that was passed in the 1940s and 50s, the majority of Southern workers are not in unions. There have never been any attempts to unionize them. I think what we enjoyed most and we will miss most about Saladin is always encouraging people to read, study, draw the lessons out from history. I didn't know when I was growing up that Fred Douglas was the vice president of the National Colored Labor Union. Didn't know it. Didn't know, you understand, that that evolved out of a period of reconstruction that helped to shape my identity and that labor was a part of that. Didn't know that. You know, so that I could have ownership in this question. Didn't know that the majority of black workers who came into unions were brought into unions in the 1800s by the National Colored Labor Union and the sleeping car porters, largely black-led unions. Didn't know that. If I would have known that, I wouldn't have felt that unions were somehow foreign to my people, to my culture, to my class, to my history. We will miss him dearly as a key strategist, not only in the labor movement, but also in the black liberation movement, of which he was a long time a leader in. We're just jumping in to remind you that you're listening to Making Contact. If you've liked what you've heard so far, please visit us online at radioproject.org, where you can find out more information about the individuals profiled in this week's episode. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And now, back to more of the Fallen Heroes of 2022. Fat Studies scholar Kat Pauze, March, age 42. I am Substantia Jones. I am a fat liberation photo activist. I began the Adipositivity Project in 2007. That's, in fact, how I met Kat Pauze. Around 2012 or 2014, I met her when she 
proposed for me for my photo activism project. She, we, <laughs> our first day, we started with uh, her naked on a Brooklyn rooftop in the freezing cold. Being fat and being visible and especially being unapologetic about it is a type of activism, you know, just simply living your life in that way is a, a radical state of being. Cat Pose was a fat studies scholar. Cat was recruited from Texas by Massey University in New Zealand. She was instrumental in establishing fat studies as an academic field. She was a, a department head there. She mentored many. She was a prolific writer of fat studies articles in academic journals. Fat studies scholarship does two things. One, it centers fatness, first and foremost. If you're not centering fatness in your work, you're not doing fat studies scholarship. And it centers fatness as unproblematic. You know, so it starts off with fat as kind of being a, a neutral thing to be. She also had an 11-year-long radio show on a local station in Palmerston North, New Zealand, where she lived. Welcome to Friend of Maryland. My name is Kat Pause, and this is a fat-friendly space. And they sought her out to do a radio show about fat liberation, about fat studies. And they were a mainstream station, and it was also uh, streamed all over the world. Today on Friend of Maryland, I talk about the new issue of the Fat Studies Journal on fat activism. I chat with Alina, an indigenous program coordinator and fat activist, and I spotlight a piece from Bettina Judd about fat phobia, racism, and white supremacy. Kat was herself fat, always had been fat and grew up as an American in our diet culture. So naturally she had the same feelings, the same, she endured the same body shaming that we all have and do. From my perspective, I call it fat stigma because what I study, what I'm interested in eradicating, and what I see as something that is a very real barrier to the full participation for fat people and what provides institutional oppression and discrimination to them is stigma tied to their fatness. Kat also ran the New Zealand Fat Studies Conference. So that drew academics and others and activists as well from all over the world. She took it from a fringe-ish movement and she put it into advanced learning. Most of the literature that we have around fatness has not been produced by fat people, about fat people, for the needs of fat people. And usually, actually, it's been completely largely divorced from people altogether. Fat people are the ones that know best what it's like to live in fat bodies. They are experts on their own experiences. They are authorities on what it is to be fat. For whatever reason, a lot of people are threatened by fat people who are unapologetically fat or defiantly fat. And those haters, I don't want to say they didn't get to her because that was the front that she put up. I don't know if they got to her or not, but they definitely did not stop her and never slowed her down. Filipino women's rights activist Nelia Sancho, September, age 71. 
My name is Pixie Castillo. I'm the Deputy Secretary General of Gabriela USA, a grassroots progressive Filipino women's organization that organizes Filipino women from the marginalized sectors of society. Nelia Sancho was a Filipino women's rights activist. She was a former beauty queen who decided to give up a life of luxuries and glamour and join the people's movement to fight for the vulnerable and oppressed sectors of society in the Philippines. She did this during the height of martial law in the Philippines um, when Marcos Sr., the then dictator, had the Philippines under his rule for more than 20 years. The nationalist and democratic struggle will not be complete without paying attention to women's specific issues and demands. And at the same time, we see the importance of the women's movement taking part in shattering the institutions that oppress women in the country. Nelia Sancho was a co-founder of the women's rights organization Gabriela, with also other fellow beauty queens who turned to activism. Nelia Sancho became one of the campaigners for the Filipina comfort women of World War II. These are Filipino comfort women who were abused during World War II at the hands of Japanese army during that time. To insist that the comfort women do not exist, to deny their existence and pain and suffering. Insisting that the comfort women should not be included in the telling of Japan's history is a great injury to the dignity and violation of the women's human rights. Deleting the initial descriptions of comfort women in textbooks taught to junior high school Japanese students means keeping younger generations of Japanese in ignorance of their country's true history and perpetuating the glorification of Japan's wartime aggression and racial discrimination against the women and peoples of Asia. We don't necessarily hear about Nelia Sancho as an individual, but we hear about her as part of these young women who really decided that they were no longer set to be like in the home or as beauty queens, but really women who were for action. I had, for example, to go out of the limitation that my father has set uh, for me. And uh, with this decision, I was able to get out of our house and stayed with people, both men and women, whom I've never known before. And in the process, I learned more about society and um, the uh, experiences of other people who are not just with my own group. I think because of the continuous dynamics of Philippine society being still under the hold of feudal patriarchy, and so the circumstances when Nelia Sancho was in beauty pageants, although that might not be the most popular forms at this current time, the roots of it still make their way into Philippine society today. So their example still stands as like a way that Filipino women can really not let our choices be dictated to us and really be active participants in making history. Urban bike activist Tony Coleman, September, age 54. My name is Brian Drayden. I'm the founder of Spokes National. 
which is a bike equity organization based on urban cycling. And I founded Richmond Spokes in 2009 when I met Tony Coleman. Tony Coleman was the founder of Bikes for Life. It was and is still a bike organization in West Oakland, California, that um, pioneered youth advocacy and social justice in the form of a bike organization. Bikes for Life, you know, our whole foundation is we're activists, we're organizers. So our whole presence of even starting a shop, we had an agenda. Our agenda was to build people's power. Bikes for Life in the middle of West Oakland was a safe place, it was a beacon, and it was also sort of a, a fortress of ideas. He developed a program to help educate kids, teach them about economy, teach them about life, teach them about entrepreneurialism, and get them together to do peace rides. And by the second year, Oscar Grant had been murdered at the Fruitvale BART station, and it became the first annual Oscar Grant peace ride in its second year. We want to get, build a movement around finding justice for Oscar Grant and his family because we're tired of these police killing our kids. Our youth, once they graduate high school, that's all they got to track to them to prison or they killing them. And we want that to end and we want these police to start being held accountable for their actions. I found I would stop in his bike shop and he would be doing classes with kids on how to respond to police violence or how to speak to police officers. He did workshops with kids and he organized curriculum around self-empowerment and around uh, entrepreneurism. He also opened a cafe and then started doing spin classes and bringing in other people to do things to abate obesity and diabetes and things like that. A lot of our youngsters that are coming home out of juvenile hall haven't been exposed to doing anything, any kind of activist kind of work or any kind of green environmentalism stuff. This is the way. They come, they get exposed to it, they end up being excellent leaders, they already have this in them. He inspired me and we started finding people in Chicago and in Minneapolis and Baltimore and Brooklyn and we started pulling together information of what this new definition of cyclist was that included the Latino laborers, the black grandparents, the young black kids, and you know, basically every culture that was invisible. The effect is that we then started seeing the urban bike movement become something very different. And the bike coalitions and the bike co-ops started having brown people in the front of their advertisement on bus billboards and things like that. Tony was a pioneer of that. A lot of folks in our neighborhood ride bikes to go to the store, to go, this is their means of transportation. A lot of them don't have cars. So for us to have a shop where they could come and use the tools, be around other folks, it's just a, a good thing for our community and for my young brothers and sisters to see somebody that look like them, that got a shot, that show another way. You know what I mean? I sold dope all my teens in uh, my early 20s. Now I'm doing something else and now the young brothers and sisters can see there's another way. Many brown people that are doing and black people that are doing advocacy work 
they do it because they have to, because it's embedded in our blood. We do it not because we are following a grant or following funding, but we do it because we can't see another way other than helping to pull his community up. Tony cared for people. He was a trailblazer and he created something that will have long lasting effect across the entire country in every urban bike movement. You've been listening to the Fallen Heroes of 2022. Of course, there were a lot of people we couldn't fit in this show. Lois Curtis, Joy Braun, and Hale Zukas were just a few. If you want to shout out the name of a local activist or organizer who left us this year, please hit us up on Instagram, where we're Making Contact Project. On Twitter, we're Making Underscore Contact. If you've enjoyed this episode, please write a review for us on Apple Podcasts and then share the show with your friends and family via Facebook. To learn more and to access other episodes for free, visit radioproject.org. The Making Contact team includes Gina Chung, Jessica Partnow, Sabine Blazin, Anita Johnson, Amy Gastelum, Lucy Kang, Salima Hamarani, and I've been your host, Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. We leave you with the words of Albert Woodfox, a former Black Panther who was held in solitary confinement for 43 years and passed away in 2022. My hope has always been, you know, for a better humanity and to try to be a part of that, to try to say something or do something that will make, if there's no more than one human being, stop and think and you know, uh, start a dialogue that can leave into, that can uh, change into a movement. You know, I've always said that one individual can cause chaos, mass movements can cause change.